Don't sit down. Okay, I do this every once in a while. I know some of you think I'm a total cheese ball for doing it. I'm going to say, all right. Look around, look around. Actually care about people and then say hi real quick to everybody. All right. Hi. Bless you. All right. Let me just say this. uh, Happy Memorial Day weekend. Um, What a cool thing. Um, Just a reminder of, I mean, there was a sacrifice that it takes for us to be able to worship like we do, and we're we're definitely thankful for that. And so tomorrow, I I feel like tomorrow everybody forgets what's the purpose of Memorial Day. It's more about hot dogs and ice cream and whatever else. Um, I, I... Take at least enough time to slow yourself down and realize it's not just a paid holiday. Um, I just feel like we kind of hurry through that a little too quickly and, and forget that. But here's what we're trying to do today. If, uh, if you need a Bible, there'll be some guys that will come down the middle. You can just raise your hand while I'm talking. But one of the things that we've tried to do is to unpack 1 Corinthians 14 um, as best as we're able to teach it. Now, the thing about 1 Corinthians 14 is that it is such a tough passage, and there are phenomenal godly men on all sides of this issue, theologians, pastors, that teach this thing. And so, like, for some of people have come up and they've said, you know, my particular view, whatever your view is, I don't think you've been fair to my view. Generally what that means, if you agree with me, you've been fair with my view. Let me just say this to you. As we've talked about before, this is not something that I hold massively firmly to. It is something that, like Paul said, we're looking into a mirror dimly trying to understand it. I just get nervous when certain people think they've nailed 1 Corinthians 14. I think there's a pride in that, and I think there needs to be a humility. And that's why as a church, we just understand there are some people, if you remember right, continuationists, believing that that the gifts uh, in their totality are still being used by God inside of his church. And then there's some that believe there's certain aspects of how the Spirit empowers us, that that they're they're not active in certain ways. And there's, there's a reason for that. They believe that in some ways that when the apostles left, those signs and different things went with the apostles, that we have the word of God. So there's, there's all kinds of reasons people hold to that. And so I'm not trying to diminish anybody's view. I'm just trying to expand our understanding that the church of Jesus Christ, because this is not an essential issue, we can actually do this in humility. We can exist as a church as long as we hold to it with humility, understanding that's where we're at. Now, let me just answer a few questions for you. People have come up to me in different, varied ways and said, Todd, oh, man, we've been studying the Bible. Let me just say that. Good. (laughs) Study the Bible. Search the scriptures daily. See if what I'm saying is true. You'll find that I'm absolutely 100% right. (laughs) No. I understand I've got holes in my thinking, and I'm, I'm not trying to say that I've nailed this one. But if this is what it takes to get you all in the Word of God, then maybe I need to preach on controversial stuff more often. Man, let's get in the Word, and let's be people of the book. But some of the questions people have asked me, so kind of what, what camp do we sit in then? Who might be some you know, popular Christian people I might know to understand our camp? 
Well, in one way, I hate that. Like, I don't like it because we tend to identify ourselves a little too much with that. But if you want to know, there's pastors like John Piper. There's pastors like Matt Chandler. There's pastors like David Platt. That would be kind of a camp pastorally we would sit in. There's theologians, guys like Wayne Grudem, uh, guys like D.A. Carson. That would probably be the world that we would kind of settle in the most. But again, on some levels, some of you are going, I don't even know who D.A. Carson is. And that's all right. He's just a good guy that's a theologian. But that's kind of the world we sit in. The other question we get, I've been getting sometimes is, okay, so where are we going to go? Let me just tell you something. Not much is going to change. In other words, if, if you've enjoyed being here, hearing the word of God open, singing songs to God, not much is going to change. In fact, we've held this view for a while. We're just now being more, more clear on it. So it's just an opportunity for us to do that. But at the end of the day, our mission is the greatest message of all time, the gospel of Jesus Christ being advanced in Simi Valley, California, our nation, and around the world. That's essential. And so that's where we're going to kind of teach this from. But today what I want to do is, is I want you to open up your Bibles, 1 Corinthians 14. And we're going, to, we're going to see how I believe Paul lands this particular issue to kind of put parameters around this thing. That, In other words, when he talks about prophecy in tongues, he understands they can be abused. The Church of Jesus Christ inside of the United States and around the world has abused this. Now, on some levels, maybe on a, some of our cessationist friends, or maybe if you're cessationist, you would say, well, if it's been abused, why don't we just shut it off? And in light of what Christian preached on last week, are you sure you want to put tape across the check engine light if it's God's way of trying to tell us you're going the wrong direction? And so in this, let's just see how Paul kind of biblically puts some parameters on this and see if we can't kind of understand then as a church how we're going to have to wrestle through this particular issue. But let me just kind of take a run through 1 Corinthians real quick before we get into chapter 14. In 110 through 420, Paul lays out this amazing truth where he just says, here's what I came and preached. I came and preached Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's what my ministry is about. He said, I lived Christ, I shared Christ, I invited you into my life, and I made it about Jesus, and their problem was they were trying to follow different leaders, and Paul says, they're not the leader, Jesus Christ is the leader, Apollos and I, we're just servants inside of the household, and so one of the ways in which 1 Corinthians has impacted the church here in Simi Valley at Cornerstone is that there's a reason I'm not the only communicator on a weekend, I don't think I'm the container of all truth. In fact, what Christian preached on last weekend is something I began teaching about four or five years ago. I handed it off to different people. I handed it off to him. I handed it off to our elders. And I just said, look, this is the way I see it. Where do you guys think? They came back and they, and they said, yeah, we think this is it. I don't think I'm the only one that's supposed to communicate here on a Sunday morning. And I think the beauty is, is you heard a Christian last week, did a phenomenal job. You hear Terry preach. He's so good. You hear Josh and Chris. You hear these different people. And Paul's point is, is it just takes a lot of people to be able to shepherd and to move things forward. So that's changed us. 1 Corinthians 5 through 6 is Paul dealing with sin, especially areas of sexual sin. There's a reason why we as a church look so seriously at something like sexual sins because we understand the implication of it, the depth of it. And that's also where we get our understanding of church discipline. Now, on some levels, churches don't even practice church discipline. And I'm like, why? 
They see it as so mean, but yet God is saying through Paul, no, the purpose of church discipline when you hand somebody over to Satan is not because we're mean, but because we want to see them restored to their Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, there's other people on the church discipline issue that kind of do it retributively, and it's like, ooh, that's nasty. It's about the restoration of the person. Chapter 7, divorce, remarriage, singleness, it has changed how we of the churches have done things because of our understanding of 1 Corinthians. Chapter 8, 1 through 11, 1, Paul's whole wrestle through freedom in Christ. I look at this issue and I see some people that fight for their freedom. We need freedom, missing the fact that our freedom is not for us. Our freedom is to serve Jesus Christ and to love others, including unbelievers, that we might become all things to all people, that by all means we might save some, not to just gratify the desires of my sinful nature. But then there's others that say, oh, you can't practice your freedom. And you know what? They need a hug. It's okay. God opens that up as a means to serve people, not serve myself. 11, 2 through 16, he speaks into the role of men and women, and I love how he does it. He doesn't belittle women or bring men down. He exalts the Father and the Son, and he says, like their relationship, men and women are to, to begin to model themselves in a unique way after them, where the husband is the leader, and he models himself after the Father, and the wife is to be in submission like the Son is in submission to the Father. That's what it's supposed to look like. In other words, they didn't devolve one or the other. They elevated. He elevated both of them. Lord's Supper, we talked about good, better, best. In other words, this book has changed how we've looked at things. And so even when we get to 12 through 14, does it affect us? Of course it's going to affect us. See, the whole point of the letter was him in 12.1. If you look back there, just kind of turn back. This is going to be his big statement. He says, now concerning, and the word there should be spiritual things. They were writing him about spiritual things, trying to understand who's spiritual, what's spiritual. And the thing he has to let them know, and this is what happens all throughout the book of 1 Corinthians, the point is not just your spiritual experiences and you having these different things. The point is the lordship of Jesus Christ, verse 3. That's what he's getting at. This is always going to exalt Jesus Christ. That's the point of what he's writing about. That's where they've missed the point. Now, they were wanting to know, then how does the Spirit empower us? And in verse 7, if you look down there, at the very end of verse 7, he tells them, when the Spirit of God empowers you, it will be not for you, but for the common good of everyone around you. Verse 11, I've heard people say, man, I should pray or, or, or ask God or somehow tell God, I need you to give me tongues or I need you to give me this different thing. And in verse 11, it says, that's not who chooses. You don't choose how the Spirit empowers you. It's according to His will that He carries it out. And then when we get to 12 through 26, He just says, and watch out. Because when God's people begin to be empowered by God and it all comes together, God's church moves forward and advances the greatest message ever of gospel of Jesus Christ. 27 through 31, everybody's needed on hand. Everybody plays a part within it. There's no unimportant part. But the problem with the Corinthians is they were saying, no, this tongues thing, it's the most important thing. And Paul says to them, no, it's not that. You think it's the greatest thing, but let me show you a greater way. And then he writes chapter 13, the love chapter, the wedding chapter. It's not the wedding chapter. I'm being cynical and sarcastic. And he just writes about love. He 
writes about the fact that when we're gripped by the love of Jesus Christ, we're no longer thinking about ourselves. We're thinking about how God empowers me to serve other people. So therefore, I'm not coming into a group of people thinking that I'm going to have my experience. And I think this is the problem with the church even today, is that somehow we show up at a place like this and we think to ourselves, unless Todd feeds me, I tell you what, it's a terrible Sunday. Church is not about you. It's about Jesus Christ and you serving other people. Now, the assumption is you will be served. But when we come in here, Paul's point, even when we get into verse 26 here in a second, it's about when we get together and building one another up. And so in 14, he lays out this idea of tongues, and we spent time in that. We, we kind of talked it through. We talked through prophecy, and again, we just were trying to get it a little bit. And last week, Christian laid out this idea of tongues being a check engine light. It's this thing that if it lands into our body, and we're not assuming that it's going to, in fact, my heart is, is that it would never land in a public way within our church, but if it does, we've got the seatbelt on because it's God's way of saying is, turn around, you're going the wrong way, Go. In other words, the Corinthians, the point is, they've missed the point, and tongues might land into a church to say, you've missed the point. In fact, sometimes I wonder if all the tongue speaking that's going on is misinterpreted. That in some way, maybe tongues is happening in these different churches, and they're like, yippee, we're having tongues, and God is going, no, I'm trying to get your attention. You're going down the wrong path. Stop. Maybe that's it. But Paul in verse 26, and if you go there, he's going to bring us back to the main point. Look down in verse 26. He's going to begin to help us understand now, what are we going to do? How is it then that we deal with this stuff in light of everything that he said? Look at verse 26. What then, brothers? Okay, so now, how does this work? When you come together, here's his key theme, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. And here's his point. Let all things be done for building up. Now his theme of when we come together is his point. He's not talking about when we're in private. He's saying when we all come together, it's not about you. It's about building others up. And then he throws a list in there. And he says, you know, one's going to bring a hymn. One's going to bring a lesson. One's going to bring an interpretation. One is going to bring a tongue. Now, for some people, they walked up to me and said, so what you're telling us is that we could be getting a warning message every single Sunday? Is that what you're saying, Todd? I hope not. I think what he's just saying is, here's a list, and he could say, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. In other words, Paul makes lists, but they kind of just to kind of, to a group of people, but it could be a lot of things. In other words, people bring all kinds of things when we come to worship, and he was just saying, here's some of the things you might bring. Now, the way that I want to explain this to you is I want to explain by, if you can imagine with me for just a second, what it looks like when you first get onto a flight. Now, just recently, I took a flight. I get on, and as I'm getting on, you know, you, you sit down, and as you sit down, you're waiting for the flight to take off, and as you start to taxi down, down comes the little TV screen, and you're going to watch what happens when we're going to go on this flight, now, some of their instructions, right, there's clear instructions like, hey, in order to have a better flight, we're going to bring you food. In case it gets rocky up here, we better put on your seatbelt, turn off your cell phones, turn off your electronic devices. There's some things that, that are going to happen on this flight, and there's no doubt they're going to happen on this flight, and so therefore, you just need to be ready for it. 
So those are one aspect of it. Now there's other things, and I don't even listen to them anymore, but my last flight I started listening to them, and I thought, how scary. She's smiling. She said, you'll notice the exits over here and over here and over here. And I'm thinking to myself, death, death, death. (laughs) Not only that, but in the event that we lose pressure in our cabin, and I'm thinking to myself, we lost pressure at 36,000 feet. I'm a mathematic guy. I would be passed out within two to three seconds. We're going to die. And she's sitting there smiling at me. Right? There are things that are going to happen, and there's things that we hope don't happen. Now, when Paul's writing this list, he's saying there's things that are going to happen, and there's things that we hope don't happen. So in other words, things that are going to happen are definitely, when we gather together as a church, there's going to be preaching of the word, there's going to be singing. Those things are going to happen. But kind of like church discipline, we don't practice church discipline every single Sunday. Can you imagine that? Nobody would be left. But I believe also tongues is one of those things as well. It's something that's not going to show up every single Sunday. It's not going to be a regular part of who we are. And that's why I compare it. If God speaks tongues, it's like the plane is going down, and we need to hear a voice of God to tell us what we're supposed to do. He needs to speak into our local congregation. So my hope, again, is it would never happen. Now, now watch what I, I think he does here to help kind of bolster that idea. Look at the first word in verse 27. What's the verse first word? If. It's called a conditional statement. It doesn't mean that it's going to happen, but it's Paul's way of saying, if this does happen, here's what you need to do. Now, what is he going to tell us in here? If this happens, the first thing he says to us in verse 27 is if anybody does speak in a tongue, let there be only two or most three, each in turn, let someone interpret, and if there's no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself, between himself and God. Now, for me, that's very, very clear. If this happens, how many are supposed to speak? Two or? And no more. Now, the problem I have with my brothers and sisters in Christ that have events in which there's all kinds of people speaking in tongues, I look down at this, and it's just super clear to me. It's not supposed to happen like that. There's not supposed to be multiple. There's supposed to be in our gathering a two or at most, and even that word most, three. That's all that's ever supposed to happen. Not only that, but it's not supposed to happen simultaneously. Look at that word. He says, in turn. Meaning, somebody then would speak a tongue, and again, this is a sign, that's all it is, and somebody else would, and maybe at three, but that's all that would happen if they are in the gathering together. Now, that word two or three, let me go back to it for just a second. When inside of the Bible have you ever heard the word two or three? Let me think about it. Whenever there's witnesses and confirmation. Now, go with me to chapter 13 and look at verse 1. You can see this in how Paul uses it later. It's not in reference to this particular topic, but you're going to see this word two or three again. 2 Corinthians, look at verse thir- or chapter 13, verse 1. 
He says, this is the third time I'm coming to you. And by the way, every charge must be established by the evidence, here's our word, of two or three witnesses. Now you find this going all the way back to the Old Testament. When you look in books like Deuteronomy 17, Deuteronomy 19, that it's clear in there that the only way we ever move forward on something or the only way that there's confirmation is if there's two or three. He also uses it inside of Matthew 16. In other words, when you're to go to somebody that's in sin, you're to take two or what? Three, there's to be a confirmation of it. And then the verse we always quote out of text, out of context in, in Matthew, uh, 20, or Matthew uh, 18 is the one where two or three are gathered, there's the Lord. Did you know that's not about the fact that if two or three of us show up, then God goes, oh, well, I better come there. My gosh, my goodness. It's about church discipline. If two or three agree on this, I'm in that with it. It's confirmation. You'll see it again in 1 Timothy in the book of Hebrews. Now again, I I don't want to hold to this exactly, but I do think if God wants us to understand something, one person is not going to do it. You're going to see two or three. There will be confirmation of this particular item. But also inside of this, and here he's going to go, here's how I want it to work. I want it to be two and at most three. It needs to be in turn. And the other thing is, is I want someone to interpret In other words, there is no speaking tongues inside of this room without interpretation. If anybody were to get up in our congregation right now and begin to speak in tongues, I would stop them. I would not allow that inside of our church. In other words, we don't do this unless we're convinced there's an interpreter in here. Paul says, this is the order I want you to keep if this were to take place. It is an order. It is an awesome thing to say, I speak on behalf of God. And we don't take that willy-nilly. We better be sure that what we're doing is, is we're speaking on behalf of him. And Paul wants him to know there's an order in which we're going to do this. So let me go through them again. If tongues comes, there's two and at most three, and it's to confirm the message. It's in turn. It's not done all over the place. There has to be an interpreter And Paul's point is, if there's not, remain silent and speak between you and God. Or in other words, just pray. Now, I think he's doing something else here when he moves on to the next section. In the next verses now, he's going to move on to prophecy. Here he's going to restate the two or three thing. He's going to say, see, there's two or three prophets. I want only, in this context, two or three prophets to speak. Now, the way I understand tongues is once tongues is interpreted, in other words, once somebody receives a message from God, it becomes prophecy. You'll see that like in Acts 2, if you remember right, when Christian preached last week, is that when Peter saw the sign of tongues, he suddenly then came to them and prophetically gave them a message from the book of Joel and he looked at them and said, now is the time, you're the ones that have crucified Jesus Christ. Repent and believe and be baptized. Today is the day of salvation, in other words, is what he's saying to them. So this idea of tongues and interpretation and a message to the people becomes key here. 
So not only now do I need to understand how this works, but then I have to understand, okay, then how do we now deal with it when it gets, when it gets spoken as a, as a message uniquely from God? Well, what do we do? Paul's going to tell us. Look down in verse 29. There should only be again two or three that are going to speak. Then he says, let the others, and we'll talk about who the others are here in a second, they're to weigh what is said. In other words, they're to take this message in. There's these others we'll talk about in a second. They're to, they're to hear the message, and then they're to weigh it against something. And we'll tell you what I think that they we're supposed to weigh this against here in just a second. Not only that, verse 31, if a revelation is made to another sitting there, and actually this, let the first be silent, it's probably not a good way of putting it, just let the one finish and be done, and then the next one can go. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all may be encouraged. Now, the thing I hope you're starting to get is, is there's a purpose and plan in which Paul is going to do this. If this happens, this is how we're going to do this as a church. Now, listen to me. The reason I don't believe we're going to ever move towards like a tongue service is I don't see the point of a tongue service. The reason we're not going to move towards a lot of things that I know maybe some of you on the cessationist side may be worried we're going to move towards is because I don't see a lot of those things off on that particular end of continuationism. In other words, in here, there must be order. Even his point later, he's going to say is because God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace. We don't get out of order in here. If it gets out of order in here, it's the job of the elders. We'll talk about this in a second to say, no, that's not how we do things. But, but listen to me. Paul is going to say in 1 Thessalonians 5, he says, look, don't quench the Holy Spirit. He's going to say, do not despise prophecy, but test it, weigh it, decide if it's true. And I'm concerned for some of my cessationist friends is that they say, no, we have the word of God. And we do. The word of God is going to be the means by which we test this. And I know even some of them are thinking, oh, I'm belittling it. No, I'm just saying is that this is what scripture says to do. Is that in some ways God does probably still speak in towards inside of his local church. And there's a way that we can do this. And there's a way in which when we're missing the point, God can say, stop. Go the other way. That's what Christian talked about last week. He gives a clear message. The people don't listen. God confuses the language. And I'll tell you what, when you get to Revelation 2 or 3, if God needs to, he'll take our lampstand. He'll take apart our church. That's why I want you to hear this message. This is what I think Paul is saying. So the question is then, how do we weigh this? I think the answer is found back in 1 Corinthians 4, 6. Go with me there. 1 Corinthians 4, look at verse 6. This verse has been a passion of mine. Ever since I started teaching 1 Corinthians, it's etched into me. He just says, look, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us, and here's the key, not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. How do we weigh this? The unchangeable, never-ending word of God. 
Scripture is there for us. It's the means by which we can test it. In fact, go back to 1 Corinthians 14. He's going to say a statement that I think leads into this. Verse 32. He says, In the spirits of the prophets, in other words, the, the way in which we do things, the way in which it's carried on, are subject to prophets. And you can, another way you can translate are subject to the prophets. All throughout, Paul has been saying the law, the law, apostolic teaching. And in this case, when he slams it in here, I think he's just referencing like Jesus did in Matthew 7. There's the law and the prophets. They're the ones that are the totality of truth. And so in other words, how do we know whether something's true or not? The word of God will tell us. So who's supposed to do that? One of my concerns is we open this door and there's going to be some of you that are going to take advantage of it. But John tells us in 1 John, can you put the first one up? Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you will know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. See, in it, there's an understanding that John has. There are going to be some people that are going to think that they, have, they are prophets. They have a message for us. But Paul says, test all of them. Look at what, what he talks, Jesus talks about in the book of Matthew 7. He says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. In other words, one of the ways we will know whether or not to trust somebody that's coming to us is we will look at the fruit of who they are. Now, what is the fruit that we're looking for? Look at the next one. Romans 16, 17 to 18 says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions, create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Our key word is, is the fruit of their doctrine or what they believe. A.W. Tozer, one of my favorite authors, he wrote this particular statement. He said this, I think, there we go. He says, it's no sin to doubt some things, but it may be fatal to believe everything. In other words, Paul's saying there's a way that we're supposed to test this because there will be false prophets. So who is supposed to handle doctrinal truth? Well, in Ephesians 4, I think Paul lays out for us who he's supposed to, who he says this. Because look, he says he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers, these key leaders, wise so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. In other words, who are the ones that are supposed to weigh this to guard for true doctrine? The elders, you can see it again in Titus. Paul talks through this in chapter 1, verse 9. The elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word is taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict. And then he tells Titus, so teach what accords with sound doctrine. That in other words, who weighs it? The elders. 
If you're somebody that thinks you have something that you're supposed to tell us, I believe the elders are the ones that are supposed to sit down and grab the word of God, the truth of it, and weigh out whether what you said is truly a message that we're supposed to hear. In other words, this is never going to get out into our congregation without first a very rigorous process of looking at something because I think it is very serious to speak on behalf of God to a local congregation. We don't toy with this. There's another passage, and I think I have it up there. Maybe I don't. In 1 Peter, it even says this. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks, who speaks is one of the oracles of God. In other words, you're speaking on behalf of him. So that's the process that he lays out. It's rigorous. It's going to keep, hope, it's going to keep us from ever going off, hopefully, into error. There's a way in which we can use the Word of God to do this, but listen to me. Do I think it's going to happen every week? No, I don't. I don't think it needs to. I think there's this way in which if God wants us to understand something, He'll tell us something and we'll be clear about it. In fact, you can look down in that very last verse in verse 33, for God is not a God of confusion but of peace. He's going to bring shalom. He's not going to lead us astray. Now, the passage that everybody's been wanting to, me to get to, especially women in our congregation, is the end of verse 33. What do we do with this whole idea of women should keep silent in the churches? Next week, <laughs> we're going to have all the women sit in the back and all the men sit in the front, mainly because men are the ones who tend to leave early. That's really why it is. It's not that. Some people believe it's silent, the idea that women are not supposed to say anything. But Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, 2 through 16 has already said women are to prophesy and pray. So that can't be it. There's many people that say, let's just not worry about this one. Let's just kind of keep moving along. Nothing to see here, everybody. Just keep moving. Some people view Paul as this Palestinian kind of misogynistic jerk. Forgetting the fact, when you look down at the end of this verse, he says, I want women to learn. Do you realize how radical it was at that time for a guy to stand in front of a group of people and say, I want women to learn? They would have looked at him like he was a feminist. There's a few people that say, you know, maybe this just doesn't belong here. Let's take it out. I don't think that's the answer. See, the reason I believe it's elders that are supposed to weigh is because we taught through this that only men are to be elders. They're to lead within God's church. I think it's just another way of saying, listen, when it comes to this weighing of prophecy, the ones who handle doctrinal truth, I want the men who are elders to be the one that handle it. And so, therefore, in it, the silence isn't they're supposed to stay shut up and the whole, the whole time we're together. The idea is, is that only the elders are to speak into this. They're the ones there to weigh it. And you can go home and interact with your husband and you guys can talk about it all you want at home, but not in the gathering. Why? Because he wants to maintain order. Don't get out of control. So what is Cornerstone going to do with this? How are we going to land this? Well, the first thing I would say to you is just this. Pray for us. Like in some ways, we're not going to make any radical changes. In fact, not much will change. And you're going to hear about the one change we're going to make here. And there's going to be one change that we're going to, we're going to start to do inside of our church. But on the other end, there's not going to be tongue services like I told you about. 
I'm not going to let people get out of control inside of our services. We're going to maintain order because we're focused on a God and, and how we worship together reflects our triune God that we serve and so therefore we can't get out of control. Currently at Cornerstone, we don't have anybody that we've verified as an interpreter. In other words, I just we're not going to be able to speak in tongues. There's not somebody that can identify the sign and, and, and just so you know, nobody's going to be allowed to ever be considered as an interpreter within here unless the fruit of their life is amazing, unless they can verify that they can do it. In other words, we just can't do it unless we have somebody that can interpret this. If it gets interpreted, it becomes prophecy. Now, how often is it going to happen? I hope never. And I don't mean that to be mean. If I really believe this is a warning from God, then I don't want it to ever happen. I want it to be something that I hope we go through all of our time here together and we're so on the right track that God doesn't, instead of saying turn and go the other way, he's going, go, go, keep moving. The direction you're going is phenomenal. But if this does come to the point where there's a prophecy, and prophecy's bigger, tongues is a form of prophecy, prophecy's bigger than that, here's what I'm going to tell you to do. Come to the elders. Let us know. We want to listen to you. We want to hear how you're speaking into this. If you're a part of a community group or a common group or a Bible study, the place to do it is not in there. Come to the elders. In other words, we don't want to cause confusion out in these different things that we're doing. If something's happening, come to the elders. Now, some of the elders that are here today, can I have some of the elders stand up just so you can see who they are? I can't see very well, but if you're an elder here, could you just stand up? All right. So well, some of the guys you can come to, you might know Terry, uh, the mouth from the south. Um, uh, He's like one of our, just one of our shepherds, gentle. Oh, don't you dare sit down. And uh, anyways, there, there he is. What a, what a good looking man. <laughs> um, but he's one of the elders you can come to. And his wife, Sheila, is just right over there. And so can you wave, Sheila? And so that's uh, them as elders. And also, too, just, you know, I'm going to be talking about this today. I would say this. If there's anything in these guys' lives that you feel that it doesn't, doesn't, uh, in a character way, match up to the gospel, could you also let us know that? Like, we want our elders to be above reproach, and so I'm showing their face, in other words, for you to know who I'm supposed to talk to, but also, these are the guys that we want to see the fruit of their life. So there's Terry, then there's Alan. Uh, he's also one of our elders. He's been around at Cornerstone almost since the beginning, haven't you? Yeah. And Kathy, give me Kathy. Uh, okay, thank you. Uh, she's over there. Uh, John uh, Reed, if you could raise your hand. Thank you. Um, he's, uh, he's the chairman of our elder board, and is Carrie here? Oh, she's, let's just pray for Carrie right now. <laughs> Lord, I'm sorry she's still, uh, <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> My wife's not here either. Um, they're, they're off playing Parcheesi. Um, and so anyways, he's one of the guys, who, uh, I see Mike back, is that Mike Steinwender? Uh, he's one of our pastors on staff. Uh, his wife, Vicki, uh, is also one, let me look through here, I see Josh Walker, uh, there's Josh, uh, his wife Carla. Is she back there? She's playing Parcheesi too. <laughs> okay. Wow. Uh, then also Pat is back there and uh, his wife Linda. I don't know if she's back there at all. I missed her last night and I felt terrible. She's waving. Uh, she's back there. And then there's Dan Lovejoy and uh, uh, his wife Carol. Uh, he's another elder that you can go to. Uh, some of the other guys that we have, because I don't see any else, uh, Lane Wickham, if you could throw his picture up just so you can see who he is. Um, we have him. 
There we go. Lane and his wife, uh, uh, Uni. Um, am I forgetting somebody? I've, and me. Me and my wife, Lisa, who's playing Parcheesi. And so um, if, 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 these are the, if you have something that you want to ask questions about, even if you want to ask questions about what we're teaching, these are the ones that you can go to. Now, here's what you're going to find is that if you come to me and say, I really hold to a cessationist viewpoint and I believe it's right, I'm going to look at you and go, okay, I'm really okay with that view as long as you don't become one who is divisive. If you come to me and say, you know, I have a continuationist viewpoint, I'll be fine with that as long as you don't try to teach within here that somehow we need to speak in tongues to be saved, that somehow you're a second-class Christian if you haven't spoken tongues. Some of those various things. It's just our church, because we believe this is such a vague text, that's the parameters that we put on it. You guys can sit down. Thank you very much. <clears throat> By the way... These guys work tires, tirelessly on just behalf of Jesus and on behalf of you all. They're phenomenal men. But let me just finish this way. Look at verses 39 and 40. So my brothers earnestly desire prophecy. In other words, this is something. It's okay. Go after it. But do not and do not forbid speaking in tongues. That's going to be his key. But all things should be done decently in order. We can't get our eyes off the target. Let me just be pastoral here to finish. I will not let this issue sidetrack us. I won't. I will not let us get our eyes off of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you're somebody in here that's going to be divisive on this particular issue, I just won't let it. I understand disagreement, and I know some of you are sitting out there disagreeing with me even right now inside of your head, and I'm fine with disagreement, but I will not put up with divisiveness. Remember the point of chapter 13, love. That's the point. Truth in love. We're going to continue to teach Scripture. We're going to stay passionate about the text of Scripture. I can't wait to start talking to you about new creation and the resurrection I believe that Jesus Christ is coming back one day. I believe it's going to be with a shout and it's going to be with a trumpet. There's no doubt within my head. And when it happens, he's going to call all of his church and we're going to spend eternity with him. That is something I'll argue with you about. But I also believe looking out at a city like Simi Valley, there's 100,000 people probably that don't know Jesus Christ. I don't have time to argue about this one. We're going to have a view, but if you want to know what I'm passionate about is that our city would fall in love with their creator in the, in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's what I'm passionate about. Last night, a young kid, 15, 16 years old, walked up to me in the Saturday night service, and he goes, I need to talk to you right now, okay? What do I need to do to be baptized? I said, well, a few questions. He said, what? I go, are you trusting in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation? He goes, without a doubt, with every fabric of my body. Okay? Do you believe that somehow baptism is going to save you? He goes, no. He goes, no, 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 no. I just know I need to do it because I need to tell the world I want to follow Jesus Christ. And I said, well, that answers my third question. <laughs> want to know what I'm about? I'm about passionate followers of Jesus. 
I'm not about arguing over silly things that we're going to sit there for days and days and days and never get the end of it. I'm passionate that we would go to our nation. I would passionate that we go to every tribe, tongue, and nation with the greatest message of all time.